I think that um, most of us are pretty familiar with the old phrase, you know, picture is worth a thousand words. In fact, it's amazing sometimes the kind of things that just seeing a picture or an image actually can say to us, the things it brings to mind, the things it stirs up inside of us. For example, there is this one, a well-known war memorial. Just looking at that picture generates its own sets of feelings and responses, uh, perhaps memories for some of you. And then from this same time period, there is this picture of people who were also standing for something they believed in. Both of them powerful images, each one bringing different things to mind, each one reflecting different perspectives on a time that people were living through together. Then, of course, there are images like this one, which reflect almost unimaginable levels of destruction. And then ones like this, that elicit a very different kind of awe and wonder over the mystery and preciousness of life. One that we're thinking about more this weekend as we think about Mother's Day and what it means to, to hold a new life in your hands, a life that has never existed before. Then, of course, there are pictures that have specific stories, events, or ideals attached to them, like this famous Rockwell painting of Brown versus the Board of Education. Those of you who have been around for a while know that that painting used to hang on the wall in the pastor's study for a lot of years here. And, of course, there's the one we know best, which reflects the reason that we gather here this morning. But sadly, even images and riches meaningful as this one can be twisted and transformed into something sick and ugly and which tell a very different kind of story and convey a very different kind of meaning. But all of them are very powerful images. All of them are pictures that speak volumes. But you know, much of the time, the images and pictures that surround and shape us are not quite that obvious. They're much more subtle in their impact, not always eliciting a particular idea, but sometimes just setting a tone or reflecting a way of thinking about things or perhaps suggesting and framing a way of thinking about things. For example, a way of living that is shaped by images that are mostly like this may be quite different from a way of living for which a picture like this is the dominant image. And of course, it's not just limited to what we can see with our eyes. For the things that we hear and read, a good story, a well-crafted poem, a thoughtful piece of writing, music, song, all of those things have the power to stir inside of us images and pictures and bring things to mind. We, sometimes we call it seeing with our mind's eye. But whether they're obvious or subtle, or whether they're visual or mental, pictures and images speak powerfully and actually influence us far more than we realize. They shape the way that we think about ourselves and about the world around us. They shape the way that we live. And of course, the most significant example of this is what we see when we turn and open the pages of Scripture. 
For what we find are not lists of doctrines or sets of ideas or action plans or even a well-worked-out systematic theology, but rather an inspired collection of pictures and images, poetry, songs, stories, accounts of amazing events that took place. There are letters and messages and reflections on life, and there are rich symbols that point beyond themselves to something much bigger. And all of those have shaped and are there to shape who we are and the way we live as God's people. For the next several weeks, we're going to be taking some time to explore some of these pictures and images together and what they tell us about just what that way of living looks like as we live as God's people. The one that's expressed in our mission statement that you find printed on the front of your bulletin, loving God, loving people, which is, as you know, a summary of Jesus' famous statement that you find in Mark chapter 12, where in response to a question that's posed to him by the, one of the teachers of the law one afternoon, and to which uh, the question was, which commandment is the most important? Jesus responds with these words. I'm reading from Mark 12, beginning with verse 29. The most important one, Jesus answered, it's this. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind and with all your strength. The second is this. Love your neighbor as yourself. There is no commandment greater than these. None. Now, in this case, as we would notice if we were to read on into chapter 12, which we won't take the time to do this morning, the person who asked the question actually got what Jesus was saying, and Jesus commends him for it. However, when the same issue comes up in chapter 10 of Luke's gospel, and this same passage of scripture is quoted, this time the questioner doesn't quite get what it means to actually live out loving God and loving people. And what is interesting to me is that the way that Jesus responds when he doesn't get it. It's not with a Bible study. It's not with more data. In fact, he already has all the right answers. He could have passed the written test. He would have done just fine. But instead, Jesus responds with a story. A story. See, the problem was not that he lacked information, but that he had framed what he knew in a way that was limiting and even blinding to what it was God was trying to get across. He needed a different set of images, a different guiding picture within which to put what he already knew. And so Jesus tells him a story, the story of the Good Samaritan, a story which took this whole thing about loving God and loving people and took it out of the mindset that this man had and completely reframed it. And in doing so, he cast this statement in a whole new light. And suddenly things began to look very different. Came as an amazing revelation to some, and became a source of great irritation to others. And of course, because images and framing stories that we are accustomed to, and that have become embedded in our lives, have been put there much more powerfully and much more securely than we often realize, 
both in us and in the communities that we live in, when you tamper with the framing stories, you do so at your own risk. But this is exactly the kind of thing that Jesus did. He told parables. He told stories that suggested alternate images, that suggested different ways of understanding the things that they knew. And then he modeled what it looked like to live that way. And so as we go about this business for the next couple weeks of exploring just what loving God, loving people looks like, we should probably not be too surprised to discover that what we find may have far less to do with more information or more data or more things that we need to know. Probably won't find anything that we didn't already know before. But perhaps it may be more about how Jesus may take what we already know and frame it in such a way that we are able to see what we otherwise often miss. That's what we hope to be doing for the next six weeks or so. We'll have a little break in there with another very short series, but at least the next six series in this series. As we explore some pictures and images and stories that Jesus shared that deeply impact the way we read things like mission statements. And as we also get a chance to glimpse just a little bit of how Jesus modeled what it actually looks like. And so I'd like to begin this morning with one of the most foundational images of them all, an image, a metaphor, a way of framing things that has been at the heart of much of our ministry here at Cala Mesa for a number of years, and out of which our mission statement over the years has arisen. It's an image that's found in the 15th chapter of John's Gospel. If you were wondering, we're not going to actually do the Good Samaritan story this morning. We're going to take you to John 15. And if you have Bibles this morning and would like to follow along, I'd like to invite you to do that. If you didn't bring yours, there should be one in the pew in front of you. And if you wish, of course, you can always follow along on the screen. But I'd like to take you here to John 15. We're here on the evening just before the weekend where everything in his ministry is now going to come to a climax. Speaking now not to the masses, not to the crowds, but to those people who were the closest to him, the leadership core of the church, those that would rise up and begin to lead after the events of this weekend had taken place. Having already shared with them some incredibly rich imagery that we don't have time to talk about tonight or this morning, uh, being there that evening, kneeling before them, washing their feet, and unpacking the implications of that with them, sharing that Last Supper together with them. And now with that done, Jesus, knowing indeed that a picture is worth a thousand words, in these final moments, he continues in speaking words of reassurance and hope by bringing this image to them that he now leaves with them. One of those last pictures from his teaching. I'm reading from chapter 15, beginning with verse 1. I am the true vine, and my Father is the gardener. Then down to verse 5. I am the vine, you are the branches. If you remain in me, and I in you, you will bear much fruit. And I think it's worth pausing just for a moment to notice the kind of imagery that Jesus is using here with those who have chosen to follow him and those who will be helping others as they make their choices in the days and weeks ahead. This is not the image of an executive boardroom. 
It's not the image of a place where things are manufactured and assembled according to a master plan. It's not a business model that's focused on paying dividends to investors. It's not even a slick marketing strategy that's designed to please the discriminating consumer, because after all, there's a competitive world that we live in. It's the image of a garden. A garden. A place where things are alive, where they're planted, where they sprout, where they grow, where they're cared for, and where they produce fruit out of the life that is in them. And you know, when you think about it, gardens are really pretty amazing places. And while there is certainly plenty of work to do in gardens, as we may be discovering in the weeks and months ahead as we finally get into this project that we'll be starting across the street with our friends and our neighbors here, of planting a community garden. I mean, there's things like working alongside of others, making the rows, irrigating with water, putting up trellises to support growing things. Yeah, all kinds of things that we do and work when we're in gardens. And I suppose some of the most industrious among us, you know, might even decide to study photosynthesis and plant genetics. But when it comes right do it, down to it, the actual life of the garden is not something that we can manufacture or produce or even fully understand. As smart as we are, we still haven't figured out how to generate life. As much as we may try to diagram it or explain it or even genetically engineer it, on some very fundamental levels, the life that we experience in growing things, whether they're plants or people, continues to remain a mystery that we get to participate in as we watch the work of the Creator begin to unfold. And so while it's into this embrace of this kind of imagery that Jesus invites us as he talks about our lives together as individuals and as a community in terms of a garden, he does so in a way that's actually remarkably accessible. It's really not that hard to understand or difficult to grasp, at least if we're willing to let go of some of the other images that our culture kind of imposes on us. And so it's with that picture in mind, realizing that this is the guiding metaphor, I'd like to invite you to listen to how he does that. Let's go back again to verse 1. Jesus says, I am the true vine. I am the true vine, the real source of your life, what it is that makes it possible for you to flourish and grow. I am, Jesus says. There may be lots of other things that we may cling to that somehow we hope to draw life from, the stuff that we have, what others think about us, or what we think others think about us, what we are able to do, what we're able to produce, some special information that we think we possess, our need to always be right about everything. Or maybe even people or things that we feel we exercise some kind of control or influence over. All kinds of things we could list that we think we draw life from. But here Jesus reminds us that the real source of life is not there. The thing that we long for the most flows from him. I am the true vine, he says. And my father, well, he is the gardener. He is not the enemy. He is not someone who is angry and needs to be appeased. He is also one who tends to you, who supports your growth, who is working there alongside of you in the garden on your behalf. 
Or as Jesus reminds us elsewhere, actually just over in John 16, 27, the Father himself loves you. Verse 2, he continues, he trims away every branch that bears no fruit, while every branch that does bear fruit, he prunes, he shapes, so that it will be even more fruitful. Again, this is against the background image of gardening. And while Jesus does point out that while it's true, the branches who cease to draw their life from the vine will cease to produce fruit and will eventually wither up and die. And so there's really nothing left to do but trim them away. The overriding imagery here is that those who continue to draw life from the vine will continue to flourish. They'll be cared for. They'll be shaped. They'll be pruned. They will grow. They will become even more fruitful. And then, as if to be sure that the disciples did not misunderstand the imagery and start to get anxious about whether or not maybe they're one of those things that are going to be trimmed off or cut away because of some lack on their part, Jesus hastens on to reassure them, just as he had in the last chapter, in chapter 14, that they still don't need to feel anxious. Their hearts still don't need to be troubled. He says, it's okay. Verse 3, you are already pruned because of the word I've spoken to you. He says, don't worry about the process. It's already happened to you. It's when you listen carefully to what Jesus says that our lives are shaped and that we are formed. That's the pruning that God does. And even though God will honor the decisions of those, should they ultimately choose to turn their back and walk away, it's not going to force anybody to stay against their will. What Jesus repeatedly makes clear here and in other places is that God is not out looking for people to cut off. It doesn't operate that way. Their relationship with Jesus is secure. This is not an anxious process that's being described. Well, this is the picture of God with which this imagery begins and, with which, and which Jesus actually, literally embodies. In fact, just a few verses before, in verse 6 of chapter 14, he had put it like this. He said, I am the way, the truth, and the life, which is just a matter, a way of saying, I am the way you get there. I am what you need to know. I am how you need to live. Or as he puts it here, using the imagery of the garden, I am the true vine. It's me, he says. Well then, so what's a disciple to do, you might ask? Well, he answers that in verse 4. So remain in me, Jesus says, as I also remain in you. No branch can bear fruit by itself. It must remain in the vine. Neither can you bear fruit unless you remain in me. Now, the King James Version, of course, uses the word abide. Here in the, uh, the TNIV that I'm using, or the NIV, your most modern translation, it's simply translated as remain. This is not a complicated word. It's not hard to understand. Whatever word you want to use, it is clear what the meaning is. Jesus is simply saying, once you realize who he is, once you connect yourself to him as the source of life, the one who is the way and the truth, making him the reference point for the decisions you make and for the way that you live, then stay there. Don't move. Hold that position. Don't be lured away by other images. They don't work. Verse 5, he says, I am the vine, 
you are the branches. If you remain in me and I in you, you will bear much fruit. Apart from me, you can do nothing. So it's abide, remain, hold that ground. Stay connected to me, Jesus says, and if you do, your life will change. Maybe not all at once, may take a while, but it will change. One of the amazing things about gardens is that you don't plant a seed and have a tree the next day, but the change happens. It's real. In fact, Jesus says, it's not going to work any other way, so don't even try. Now, that's not to say that you can't make things happen by doing things other ways and taking other routes or operating with a different set of guiding metaphors. You can. There certainly were plenty of others to choose from in the time of Jesus as well. The Sadducees, the Pharisees, the Zealots, the Herodians, the Romans, and later on, even the Gnostics and other groups like them all had their own images, all had their own guiding metaphors, all had their own pictures and framing stories. There were cultural things in the culture that were just waiting the opportunity for the message of the church to be poured into them so the church could now start looking like the culture that it lived in. All of those things helped to shape who those people were and how they lived. And we are not short on options today as well. But what Jesus is describing here, and this is what is so important in this image, is a way of life, one that operates with a unique guiding picture, one that runs deep, and one that produces a particular kind of fruit that you just don't find any other way. And so then, just what is this fruit that the passage talks about? What is so different here? Well, as we read on, Jesus explains exactly what he means by this kind of fruit. He doesn't leave it up in the air. Verse 9, as the Father has loved me, so have I loved you. Now remain in my love. There's that word again. If you keep my commandments, you will remain in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commands and remain in his love. Now, it was interesting this week as we were talking about this passage in staff meeting. Somebody mentioned how they have heard this passage read in a way that resembles more uh, someone skilled in the art of emotional blackmail, you know, saying, if you love me, then you will do what I tell you, rather than hearing it as the voice of a gardener who is there tending growing things. It's a very different way that's read, depending on the image that you start with. But of course, not only does that kind of image not fit too well with, with the picture in the passage, because to uh, loosely quote what Maury Benden is often fond of saying, branches do not bear fruit out of coercion or in order to become or prove that they are branches, but rather because of the life that's in them that flows out of their connection to the vine. And obviously, it doesn't fit with the image at all. But it's also out of sync with what Jesus goes on to continue to say as we continue to listen to him speak here. Verse 11. I have told you this, he says, so that my joy may be in you and your joy may be complete. My command is this, love each other as I have loved you. Love each other as I have loved you. Greater love has no one than this than to lay down one's life for one's friends. Now, do you hear the echo of our mission statement in there someplace? Love each other as 
I have loved you. Loving God, loving people. Two phrases that are organically linked together. It's as we live in grateful awareness of God's amazing love for us and stay there that we are enabled to love others in a manner that reflects the way that we have been loved. If we don't stay there, we can't. The fruit that's born by staying connected to Jesus, to the God who loves us beyond what we could ever grasp or even merit, is that we will find ourselves now able to love others in a similar kind of way. And then Jesus goes on, and there's much, much more that he says as he develops the picture and the image and and, uh, all that he has to say here about the vineyard and the parable that he tells. Uh, We don't have time to get into it all this morning. We've only just scratched the surface. But perhaps this is enough for us to begin to get a feel for the picture that is being painted here. The picture which may be more important than understanding all of the details. The picture that forms the backdrop for and shapes things like our mission statement. It's the picture of a garden, something that's alive and full of growing things. It's the picture of a loving gardener who stands alongside of them, who kneels alongside of them and cares for them. It's where as long as branches stay connected to the true vine, the real source of life, they find that they are able to pass on to others the life that they are receiving and the fruit that they bear. It's an image that reminds us that these two phrases, loving God and loving people, are not two poles on opposite ends of a spectrum, that somehow we hold in tension with each other, as if you have to be in one place or the other, as if you have to make a choice between an inner-focused spirituality of loving God and an outer-focused spirituality of loving people, but rather they are the point at which they converge into one organic living whole, something that's alive and something that's growing. The choice is not, and it had never has been, between choosing an inner and outer focused life, but whether we will be focused on Jesus and his interests and remain there, or whether we will be focused and guided by self-interest. That's the only contrast we need to be concerned about. In contrast to the tendency of our modern world to take things apart and focus on how you keep them in tension, Perhaps we should let Jesus supply the imagery that focuses on how you bring things together by drawing them all and each other into relationship with himself, the real source of life. Time on my knees before God's open word, listening, paying attention, caring for spiritual disciplines, thinking about my inner spiritual life, and time on my knees working the ground alongside of others and for the good of others, both converge together in the image of gardening. That's the image that Jesus shares with us. Those two phrases are bound together in a way that cannot be separated. You cannot bear the kind of fruit that Jesus is talking about without staying connected, and you cannot be connected with Jesus without it showing up in how you live. It's simply a principle of life. More accurately, it is a way of life and one to which we are called. Not that we always do this as well as we would like. I mean, after all, gardens are places for growing things. 
There are a few things that actually reach that place and stop. But certainly, a picture is worth a thousand words. In the weeks ahead, we are going to continue to explore some of the pictures and the metaphors, some of the framing stories that Jesus shared and the patterns of life that Jesus modeled that provide the context into which we understand what the kingdom of God looks like and what it means to embrace that way of life and what it's all about, that Jesus called the greatest commandment of all, one that summarizes the rest of the commandments, one that finds expression in our mission statement, loving God, loving people. And I don't know about you, but I'm looking forward to the journey. Father in heaven, we are grateful this morning for pictures and songs, images that give shape to the words that you have spoken to us in scripture. We thank you this morning that uh, we are surrounded by growing things, that we are alive and growing because of the life you have given to us. Pray that you would give us the wisdom, the insight, the good sense to stay connected to you and to allow the life that you give us to fill us and flow out of us and touch the lives of people around us. Uh, We are grateful this morning for your presence in our life and the assurance that your gardening never ends for us. And uh, we are grateful that we can rest in that this morning. We pray in Jesus' name.